Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Charles Bromesco. And I'm Casper Salmon. On the show this week, it's everyone's favourite Italian plumber, Super Mario. A priest's faith is tested in Godland. And on Film Club, a crisis of faith faces those who seek Fitzcarraldo. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Welcome to you both for this incredibly erratic week of films. Although I suppose, Casper, last time you were on here, we did Minions and Nitrum. So you're kind of used to that sort of wild vacillation in tone. (laughs) Yeah, uh, a really chaotic children's movie and a grown-up movie that actually makes sense. Well, you know, the films that we're talking about, they're all about people going on great journeys guided by their own convictions. I, I could grasp at some straws and find some connections between these. No, definitely. I think the, the, the stories today are all about the folly of man in some way. Imagine <laughs> if that uh, that sad religious photo taker had had a power-up mushroom and how far he would have gotten in his journey that way. Stop right there, Charles. That's enough. <laughs> Charles, also a bit of a welcome back to you. Please don't stop. We never get enough of you. But you've got had some exciting news in the meantime. You wrote a book. Yeah, uh, it came out in the U.S., just early last month. It's a lovely book called Colors of Film, colon, The Story of Cinema in 50 Palettes. It's, it's a nice book. It explores the history of the medium, its politics, its technology, its culture through 50 films and their use of color, the, the techniques that bring these colors together, the way that they're deployed, what they mean for, for the its moment and, and its country of production. Uh, I learned a lot writing it, and I hope uh, I'm excited to share that with everyone who reads it. You've got some kind of perhaps choice in the in the films uh, that are more kind of typical you've got your Wes Andersons in there but I was super excited to see Belly yeah yeah everybody loves Belly I mean that's the thing is that um I have definitely heard about that one the most and everyone who does is like I was so surprised it was in there and so pleased I think Belly might be more popular than people who like Belly realize but I I love that movie very much I showed it at a screening on a lovely 35 millimeter print last month and it was very well attended oh well justice for hype Williams that's because right. it was let's get not, him another feature um, yeah, it was not very well received by the critical establishment of the time, shall we say. Time has caught up with Belly. Thank goodness for that. And Casper, another author in our midst, but a very different sort of book of <laughs> yours is on the shelves at the moment. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I've written my second picture book, which is, again, a very nonsensical, silly thing. Um, and at the moment, yeah, I'm trying to write my third, which is just going incredibly badly. So yeah, this is a welcome reprieve from that nightmarish chaos in my mind. In the course of your work, do you find that children are more or less critical readers than adults? I, I feel like they're hard to hard to keep hooked. Well, it depends. If I, I'd like to make a distinction there between standard children and my own children. Uh, stand- <laughs> it's an important one because standard children are generally very nice and my, my own children hold me to an incredibly high standard that I can absolutely not measure up to. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when it comes to my children, I'm much more discerning than they are when it comes to books, because there is so much trash out there, I must say. Um, I love your book, Casper, but like, yeah, the amount of kind of David Williams-esque monstrosities that are on the shelves <laughs> is uh, truly depressing. So awful. But the rest of it, I mean, David Williams is one thing. I mean, you know, the guy's, the guy's a nightmare. But the rest of it is all like, I was looking yesterday on the shelves and all of the books, almost all the ones I could see were about, um, about being kind to one another. And... <laughs> And, you know, that's all very well in practice. And I think we should instill that in children. But that's a fucking boring subject to read about. 
Yeah, I feel it like really I, is. I see so many books that are written by celebrities, just sort of a lark. Is it frustrating that you have to compete with like Reese Witherspoon in in the <laughs> literary market? <laughs> I I don't feel like I'm competing with Reese Witherspoon. You should. She thinks of you that way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I know your children have got very discerning taste in films as well. I mean, have you had any highlights recently with things that you've shown them? Yeah, we went to see Singing in the Rain about 10 days ago, something like that. And they really, really enjoyed it. Actually, I had an incredible cinephile weekend with them because the day before that, we watched Lionel Palmerson's short film Nest together, which is a good a good segue into Godland for later. But um, we watched his short film, which is on movie, which is so beautiful about his own children and their building playhouse in the garden. And it's just 20 minutes of that filmed from a static angle. And uh, the kids really, really got into it. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm making some real cinephiles here. And then we got back from the Singing in the Rain the next day and they forgot about that quite quite quickly and were excited about the, the trailer for Super Mario Bros. Back to square one. <laughs> Well, I guess it's time to find out whether or not you are going to absolutely adore sitting through that film a second time. No. (laughs) (laughs) Short answer. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady 8Q page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. With help from Princess Peach, Mario gets ready to square off against the all-powerful Bowser to stop his plans from conquering the world. So a pretty simple kind of story there. There's a big Bowser, I suppose he's the king of the Coopers, that uh, wants to take over the world. But he also wants to marry Princess Peach. Charles, what did you make of the kind of plot at the core of Super Mario Brothers? Yeah, you know, um, Mario, as video games go, not super plotty. And so I think you have to impose a lot of narrative onto it. The whole Bowser marriage plot, uh, this is one of, you know, the classical marriage plot films uh, popularized in the 30s and 40s. No, I'm kidding. The the whole Bowser (laughs) marriage plot is, I believe, from Super Mario Game galaxy or maybe the most recent one for the nintendo switch one of the very new ones which you know for comedy i think is is fine that you get to see jack black wearing a white top hat which is just you know inherent comedy and he gets to play a sad song of being jilted on the piano which uh, you know the jack black character is probably what i enjoyed most in this film he's he's a wonderful bowser he gets to do the sort of high fidelity singing through Bowser's mouth, which is amusing to me. But yeah, I guess, you know, just in terms of this movie trying to have a plot, I suppose I'm grateful that, you know, the whole thing is Bowser wants to marry Peach and she's not interested in him because they have uh, no history or, or, or chemistry or anything like that. And so in the climax of the film, she's just kind of like, no, I don't think I'll be marrying you. And there was a part of me that was worried that someone would be like, remember, re- respect women or, or consent, or just try to shoehorn some very like grown up social message into, I think, what is a determinedly stupid film. That's where I stand. Well, I mean, Casper, for you, obviously, we kind of do want to make sure that the messages that we give our children are are good ones. But when it came to Peach, the way that this kind of female character, who's kind of the only real female character in this, was presented, I mean, is that something that you'd be worried that your children would absorb? 
I, I have to say, I found the whole Princess Peach... I, I sound like such an idiot talking about this stuff. I found the whole Princess Peach storyline unbelievably depressing. <laughs> like, who is this Who is this woman? What's she doing? She's just one... She's like, um, she's like the Smurfette, basically, in this film. Yes. She's like a woman who, for no reason that anybody can understand, is there. And absolutely everybody wants to have a go on her, which is incredibly... Can you blame them? I mean, look at the design of Princess Peach. They make her sexually appealing. I think she has to be. I have to say, I her Valerie Cherish hair doesn't do it for me, but, you know, to each their own. Yeah, I, I found that really quite sort of horrible, really, that... She's this character who's supposed to be able to do stuff and she's good at all the jumping and bleep blooping on the boxes and all of that stuff. (laughs) But (laughs) I will be saying bleep blooping during this podcast. Deal with it. And so she's good at all of that. But ultimately, she's not a character who's allowed to exist in her own right. She's just this person who's going to be fancied by by the male ones. I found it quite depressing and also... What was sort of depressing was that in being voiced by Anya Taylor-Joy, they're obviously doing this thing of like trying to connect the voice of an of a hot woman to the voice of this hot cartoon. And I found that was quite sort of, yeah, quite depressing and a bit weird. In the same way that they've got Chris Pratt for Super Mario, right? They're trying to just get hot people in the leads, even though it's a kid's cartoon. It's very weird. Yeah, I mean, Charles, one of the things when the kind of trailer first came out is people complained about Chris Pratt's voice, that he kind of was both too Italian and not Italian enough at the same time. I mean, did you kind of settle into a rhythm with his voice performance. Yeah, I mean, I think I have to agree with Caspar on that, that watching this, I was worried that voice acting might just be a dying art, uh, because they are not hiring voice actors for these things anymore. They're hiring celebrities who then just do their normal voices, regardless of how incongruous to the character they may be. I think uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who is, seems like a wonderful person, and I know she listens to this podcast, so don't hold this against me, Anya, but uh, no, she's Well, she's terrible, been a guest on terrible. this podcast, oh, I wait, really? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I don't I don't think she's very good in this role. I think that when you look at Jack Black, who's doing the best voice acting, there is character, there is texture, there's exuberance, there is, you know, stylization to his voice. She's really just reading the lines. And so that is disappointing. I guess I could go through case by case. Seth Rogen is pretty funny as Donkey Kong because he gets to do his Seth Rogen laugh and you literally see it coming out of the mouth of a monkey, which feels cosmically correct. It's Caspar's <laughs> nodding his nod. No, he doesn't feel that way about Donkey Kong. No, it's fine. It's fine. I just hasten to add for listeners you might not know this it's not really a donkey yes okay so i i first off i love that you believe that everyone else also has uh is, is as confused by this as you did you do research to figure out why he's called donkey kong yeah i did and i found the answer thank you yeah i did do you know this i i do i'd like for you to share it with the cast i'd like to hear what you learned so the guy who's the head of nintendo or whatever used the word donkey as I think the word is a metonym, but I might be wrong, you know, to convey that the character is stubborn in some way. Yeah, Um, he's, you know, he's got a a dangerous kick on him, like a donkey. You got to watch out. Anyway. Well, well, color me enlightened. It really is just Kong. It's a Kong, isn't it? It's like a stoner Kong. So uh, last night, I think there was some some chuckling going on because in the variety review of this film, writer Owen Gleiberman, in trying to make Donkey Kong comprehensible for who what he believes is his readership, he puts him in terms, he describes Donkey Kong as a Lionel Barrymore type, which no, no, to no, me is... Bowser, babe. It's Bowser. Oh, it's, it's Bowser. I'm sorry, not Donkey Kong. It's Bowser. W- was that actually very useful to you? You'd be like, otherwise, I, I would have had no idea, but Lionel Barrymore, now you're 
speaking my language. Exactly. I've got the quote here. He's like a fusion of Lionel Barrymore, the Wayland Flowers puppet, Madame, and a T-Rex plushie made for Douglas. I'd love to imagine the reader who sees that and they're like, oh, I understand perfectly now. Thank you for putting it in, in a way I get that it. I could understand. Bowser, right. Yeah, I mean, look, I accept the character on his own terms. It's fine. I was drawn to Bowser, right? I, I, you know, I'd already seen the gifts of his disturbingly penile finger touching Luigi's. I think that that's, that's, that's you doing that work. I think sometimes we see the things from cinema we want to see. I think it's just a finger shaped (laughs) finger is how I saw it. I, I meant to say before when we were discussing the plot of the film, the most surprising aspect was that he's like very Italian in this movie, much more so than in the games. Like you don't see him with the family from Moonstruck chomping down some spaghetti. That doesn't happen in the games. He's just a regular plumber who has an Italian name. And this one, he's like, you know, doing scenes from my big fat Italian wedding, basically. Yeah, that was, I didn't get that at all. I mean, they're, they're, they are called Mario and Luigi. So, you know, it's got to come from somewhere, right? Yeah, but they're, they're, I, I guess I thought that they were more Americanized than that. Because in this, they seem like maybe third gen, like maybe their father's father came over from Italy and they're still very closely connected with their culture. These are questions I shouldn't even be thinking about if we're watching a movie about <laughs> Super Mario Brothers. And yet they, they force us into that. Yeah, it always does strike me, though, the kind of particularly Italian-Americans or Irish-Americans, that they seem to be almost more Italian and more Irish than the people that are still there. This was, yeah, I, uh, you know, I was raised in Massachusetts, which is one of the most Irish parts of the United States. And although the kids that I went to school with had no real bearing in, in Ireland, they were born and raised in the same town that I was, you get, you, I think you have to get very aggressive about repping, about representing your, your heritage. And so people do play it up. And I guess, yeah, Mario and Luigi are the Italian equivalent of that. So we we reject that criticism that they were too Italian. Charles, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Not acceptable. But I mean, in terms of the actual characterization of Mario, I mean, I'm not a gamer. My brain isn't able to kind of somehow do it. But like, as somebody that kind of knows the games a bit better, that this seemed generally to be quite an authentic representation of what people liked about that. I guess so, in that um, much in the same way that Mario is the most boring character in the movie, in, in the games, like no one's favorite character is Mario. He's very much like the vanilla, you know, bog standard, plain flavored kind of guy. Luigi has more personality. He has neuroses. He has a sort of hard to pin down sexual energy that Mario lacks. And so, yeah, Mario, you know, he gets the job done because he's got to be the main guy. But I, 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 he doesn't really get the good material, not either in the games or, or this. The thing that I guess really bugged me about this, if I can get into it, is that all of the most fun characters from this little universe that they have brought to the movies, it seems like they're saving for what they believe will be an inevitable sequel. The whole fun thing about Mario is that he rides around on a dinosaur with a cute face named Yoshi. Did you find this in your research, Caspar? Did you learn about Yoshi? <laughs> I saw, I heard about Yoshi, and I've, I've heard about Yoshi from my children. So you, um, you know of Yoshi. You know Yoshi's work, but you don't know Yoshi personally. Yeah, again, like, just big fan, you know, by, by proxy. Yoshi has a lot of charm, and there is a girl Yoshi named Birdo, who has a sort of yonic-shaped face, who is a lot of fun. There is a... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Negative universe Mario and Luigi named Wario and Waluigi, who, again... Uh, much more charisma than most of the characters seen in this. And so I resent the idea that like they're trying to play their cards close to the vest so they can stretch this out as long as they can. I uh, that that's that's I don't know, unsporting. Well, I mean, Tokyo's stretching it out. This is only an hour and 20 minutes. Do you think kind of that runtime that, that that generous gift of a sub 90 minute runtime worked in its favor? Yeah, for sure. I mean, these things are not well served by being long, even though lately they've decided that that is the shape they want to take. It was a it was a long eighty minutes though I thought I mean he, he, you know considering that it's a kind of short runtime like like I feel like they were racing on that rainbow for a good fifteen minutes of that runtime my goodness that couldn't I mean that couldn't come to an end quick enough for me I suppose uh, my presumption is no but were either of you on drugs when you watched this film only alcohol which is sadly a drug. no I would recommend that dimension of the viewing experience very highly I think it really enriched. Uh, my appreciation and and this actually might be good blanket advice for video game movies because the last time i felt this way was when i saw detective pikachu released in france as pikachu l'inspecteur i i don't know if it was that's just my favorite joke but no these movies uh which are really just broadly idiotic if you get toasty enough and then you can basically ignore almost all of the dialogue and just sort of look at the fun things happening on screen people who seem to want to defend the things they like often tell you to turn their brain off but i think that that's really only a fair prescription for something that you don't think is very good and are just trying to have the best time possible with. Well, that is as strong an argument for the decriminalization of marijuana in the UK as possible. We will add that to the list of of very good reasons why it needs to happen soon. Me and all the grime rappers at the decriminalization meetings are on the same page about this. (laughs) Gosh, it was so gaudy, though. Didn't that? That would have absolutely fried my brain, honestly. I like, there's one part where, like, they get stuck in a cave where there are just shards of colored light lying around, casting odd, odd glows in this direction and that it's a yeah hey <laughs> i mean it's a shame your book came out so early really because you could have you could have chucked just well, so no yeah here's the uh, argument in. for a second edition i go to the publisher i say we have to go back to print yeah mario bros it is it just honestly like that first bit where he the where mario arrives from brooklyn in this made-up world what i don't know what's the world called has it got a name well the the beginning world is real they're in brooklyn new york where where i live <laughs> i see mario and luigi every day as i as i go to work <laughs> Well, it looked truly fantastical, may I say. Anyway, when he arrives from there into the mushroom land, or whatever it's called, I mean, dear God, my eyes took a 
battering. It's like this this place makes the Emerald City look like Satantango. <laughs> Honestly, like just it's scary. Like that's a level of of excitement for a child's eyes that will drive them true. It's like t- Technicolor pumped full of steroids, and it's going to like burst a vein because it's got too much blood pressure going on there. Yes, and it's also shouting trans rights quite loudly. <laughs> I, I will say that Mario and Luigi, I seeing the rendering of, of Brooklyn that they live in, they appear to live in the neighborhood colloquially known as Dumbo, aka down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass, which I'll just say that a pair of borderline amateur plumbers on what I have to imagine is a very paltry salary, that is socioeconomically unrealistic. There is no way they would be able to make rent in this neighborhood, even with plumbing being at a high premium in New York, because no one knows how to fix anything. I, I love in a thing with donkeys battling people and mushroom kingdoms that that was the thing that really stood out to you as unrealistic. This is what drugs do to you. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about this film is, well, so I didn't understand the story. I mean, you know, what, what story? story? He just literally was. goes on a journey to defeat the turtle man. So he goes to, like, he's with the mushrooms, but they have to defeat the turtles. And then the turtles come back to try and defeat them. It's but a war. This is how, this is the functioning of war. Mate, honestly, like, it, it was incomprehensible. Um, but the thing that drove me crazy is, like, amidst all of this, they haven't tried to explain, like, the whole idea of levels and things that suddenly go bloop, 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 bloop. Like this, that's just an added kind of thing that's in the background of every shot. Like, oh yeah, you can you can just climb on a box if you want and hit a mushroom and power up or whatever. People are constantly. Are you saying that up. you wish more or perhaps all of the movie was people jumping from one platform to another platform? What I would have liked is for the whole film to be people traveling from left to right on <laughs> on, a, on a level, and then they sometimes jump and then go back down to that level, and it's left to right, and at the end they get to the they get to their destination. So I mean, like there, there's the cute part before they go to Mushroom World where they're walking through the construction site and it's literally it's it's shot like a side scroller in that same way that where it's like great. this movie is dumb but that is the one visual thing where I was like okay you figured out something that is uh, marginally clever in representing the way this video game works that lasts about two and a half minutes and then we let go of that visual schematic I love I love your idea for like a rigorous hyper formalist Mario like the camera is on a fixed track it cannot tilt it cannot pan it can only slide from le- from left to right like like reading or the elapsing of time. If I was writing for film comment, that's what I would liken it to: the inexorable passage of time. And then the characters have three lives and they die. Yeah, just like in a Sai Ming Lang movie. I mean, in my version of this movie that I would love, there would be way more of that small nihilistic star. <laughs> I loved that guy. I don't know who that star was, but stole the show. Yeah, every because this is an Illumination production, and they're the Minions people. And I think in every one of these movies. Like, I could guarantee you that at the meeting, someone's like, all right, what's our minions for this one? Because you got to have, like, a cute little thing that, that people will think is funny and love, even though it annoys the shit out of me. Wait, you think that the giant spin-off character that the kids are going to love is the star that wants to kind of embrace the sweet release of death? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I think, God, ugh, I think the star has like a name. I think in the game, the star is named like Lumo or something, but I'm not going to bother googling that what's the name of the little mushroom voiced by keegan michael key uh, so his name is toad because he looks like a toadstool my favorite the one part that i enjoyed in anya taylor joy's very bland vocal performance is when in concern she goes my toads where i was like oh you gotta watch out for your toads you gotta get 
got to get them together. Can I just ask if you, you might not know this, but whether the red and white polka dot top on Toad is his hat or his head. I'm so glad you asked because this has been the subject of heated debate among scholars literally for decades. If you look, you will be able to find illustrations like, you know, cross-sections, Da Vinci-looking, you know, x-rays of everything. I I would really recommend that you Google Toad without hat and see, like, the fan illustrations of what his giant, bulbous, nude head looks like. And so I guess my answer would be that I don't know. And and what's more, I like the not knowing. I prefer the not knowing to having an answer either way. That's beautiful. Thanks. Beautiful, truly wonderful note to end on. The idea of anatomy of a small anthropomorphized toad. Uh, Well, no, toadstool. I should correct myself. But uh, yeah, let's get some scores on this. Casper, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Oh, Lord. Anticipation. Uh, we're out of five, right? We are. One. Fair enough. Well, that's very generous of you to see it before us in that case. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in anticipation, one. In retrospect, I would say well, one. And then what's my last one? Enjoyment. Enjoyment. I would say one. <laughs> You're a man who knows what he likes. Uh, Charles, what about you? We got a, we got a winner across the board. I would say, oh, let's see, I don't know. Three anticipation, because this is intellectual property that I have some fondness for, I guess, more so than like Ghostbusters. The experience I kept thinking about while I was watching this was I went to go see the Ghostbusters for the one that came out recently at New York Comic Con surrounded by Ghostbusters freaks. And I was like, man, I wish I liked anything as much as these people like this. Uh, and so I get a little bit closer to that. Three anticipation two and a half enjoyment i suppose two two to three enjoyment perhaps and then either two or one in retrospect it's 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 less fun to think about after the fact than it is to sit and watch drugs or drugs or no um yeah i think i'm probably twos across the boards might have been at a one if i hadn't kind of enjoyed jack black and the the star that wants to embrace the misery and the oblivion of unknowing and yeah i mean it it, he he did punch through for me at least but cannot deny that there is some joy to be taken in just having to not sit with this for hours and hours and hours next up godland Set in the late 19th century, the film stars Elliot Croset Hove as Lucas, a Lutheran priest from Denmark who was sent to Iceland to oversee the establishment of a new parish church, only to have his faith tested and challenged by the harsh conditions of rural life. David Jenkins spoke to the director about his film. So, yeah, welcome to, to the Little White Lives podcast. Well, I'd love to to ask you first, if you could speak about the aesthetic of the film, because so much of the story is grained on this idea of image making and filming the landscape and, and using these sort of vintage image capturing devices as well, like which is a kind of part of the story. I'd love to know how you develop the the aesthetic of the film, specifically the, the sort of the grain and the film and, and you know, the whole look of it. Well, I, I think I think often when I sort of trying to figure out, you know, the why you decide something, you know, the decisions on, on how you do things, it's often like an extension of what you've been doing before. And I don't mean that you're kind of repeating yourself every time and doing the same, but there is like there is like a natural movement or a natural way of doing things. And you kind of learn a little bit every year and, and uh, you find things that you sort of connect to and approaches that you like. And, you know, you know how to collaborate with people or how to prep a film or, how you know, how to edit a film or all of these things. And I so so for me, it's, it always feels like an extension of what I've been doing, but always like 
moving forward somehow. So it's 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 often very hard for me to say exactly, you know, what it is that we do. I mean, we try new things. I mean, the format itself, like the the material we're, we're shooting on is 35. And I mean, we know that format from before, both with the, our, our, our sophomore film, A White White Day, which was shot on 35, but it was shot on two perf and this one is shot on four perf. So the size of the negative is two times larger on Godland than the film before. Basically that you're using the whole negative space, like uh, you're, you're uh, and when you're shooting 35, you're using half of it. And uh, that means basically that you, you, you get a bigger image, you know, and it's not maybe as big on the cinema screen because it's not wide, but it the scale of it, the, the landscapes just work, for, you know, in my opinion, just work better because of the size of the negative. So, and this I kind of had to learn through, you know, making a white, white day where I had problems with the widescreen. I had problems with coming, you know, very close to a face. And, and uh, I, I wasn't really excited about framing, you know, when I was framing a shot. And normally I'm quite excited. Uh, so I knew that the, the wide format is sort of ir- irritating me. And so I, I started testing other formats. And, and the old Academy format was just something that I related to. And I loved I loved, you know, putting the camera up and I loved framing and I loved uh, it's especially good with with like portraiture or faces and um, and also landscapes. But it's kind of difficult with this kind of medium shots, I, I feel. So I, I'm also interested in other formats like the 166 format. I think it's beautiful. And, and the 185 I've always been very fond of. But I, I felt for this film because of uh, Lucas's camera, the 8x10 fitted very well with the uh, with our aspect ratio. And um, and I, yeah, just I'm shooting everything with that format right now because it just feels very effortless when I put up the camera it feels like very natural for me and yeah it's strange that's that's really fascinating to hear you talk about Mm. the framing like that because it's kind of it's not something that you'd maybe expect a filmmaker to sort of find pleasurable but you seem to you seem to find it quite pleasurable is it is it a kind of like search for perfection in a, a sort of aesthetic perfection or what what is it about that framing that's interesting to you I think there's something about when I'm doing something, it has to be exciting. And, um, you know, even in, in the stages of script writing, you know, if, if there's a scene that is like, that I'm not excited to film, then I, you know, often like just take it away or throw it away. And, and I have all, always, when I'm writing a script, there's like this separate document, which I have behind it that says like scenes that I don't like anymore. <laughs> and and I just take the scenes and put them there. I don't throw them away. So I I can always go back and look at them. But the scenes that I don't like anymore, it's like always becomes like this huge document of scenes that I don't know even how many pages of, of, of script they are, probably much longer than the, the script itself, you know. So, but I, and I think that's also when we're filming, I think it's, um, it has to be something that stimulates you or excites you. And if you're working with a very, or like I was doing with uh, A White White Day, we were kind of deciding on the format because of the car scenes, because there are a lot of car scenes. And we, we sort of needed to to be able to have, you know, two characters at the same time in the frame. It was quite, quite difficult with the, with the narrow format. But then when we weren't in the car, I was like, oh shit, we should have shot half of the film just with another format and then just cut them together. But it, it's, 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 I think it's a gut feeling. Yeah, and I think, I think I'm, I'm working more and more with just like with my gut, just feeling my, my way towards things and just uh, being very honest about like things not working for me or, or, and I think the format is one of these things. It's just like uh, making a film for me is like, like million details, you know, and everything is, really important and it uh, not meaning that everything has to be strict or everything has to be like uh, stiff not at all 
but I mean more like everything has to have energy and everything has to, you know, color each other and mm. and, um, and affect each other and, and they have to be right for the feel of the film or so so I, I you know for me the format is important and the aspect ratio is important the sound is important like everything is as important and if some of these things don't work I, I feel like the film doesn't work as a whole you know it's always this kind mm. of strange balance a film is just balance you know it's like you're always balancing you know energy and keeping a dead thing alive kind of you're trying to keep the 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 film alive somehow it's very strange going back to what you were saying before about when you do the script and you kind of have the scenes that you get rid of do you ever return to those like maybe even after you've made the film and just sort of look through and think oh actually or... <laughs> <laughs> no i haven't i haven't actually done it afterwards but <laughs> i definitely i definitely do it like but it's good i mean i having a deadline is very good good for me because otherwise I, I just keep working on it forever so you know when I'm supposed to deliver a, a, a draft to my producers I sort of sit down and, 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 and write and, and I say okay now I have to write this and, and then I sort of go over <laughs> the scenes that that I don't like and see if you know if there's anything there that maybe is okay you know and if it now it has had had some time to just settle and maybe it's not that bad but then I also go through like I have these voice recordings I do where I just you know have ideas and go through them you know see what they're about and then I go through these folders I have also with all kinds of materials and look through them and and you know when all of these things kind of combined I I, I sort of start writing again. That sounds like a, a complex process and one where you maybe would have to be very unselfconscious about ha having ideas and judging the ideas as well. Yeah, but it's funny. It's like when you when you go through life, you often like experience things. Like you see something or, or a friend of yours say something or, or my kids say something. That, and I, I always immediately know if, I, if it's something that I really, really have to sort of steal. And I always know exactly what, you know, project to put it in. And it's very strange. I have like, you know, all kinds of projects that I'm working on, you know, and Many of them, you know, won't be realized and some of them will probably take, you know, 10, 20 years to be realized. But I know exactly what title of them or, or even, you know, if it's a working title or a feel or something. I know exactly where to put it, you know, even if it's just like, you know, two words. I just know that, oh, I like these words together. Let's put it here. It's going to be, I don't know, it's very strange, but I've always, for a long time, I've been doing that. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. It was good seeing you again. You too. All the best. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. 
It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So, Casper, I imagine Godland is something that you've connected with a little bit more, perhaps, than Super Mario. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, um, I think I connected to Godland a little more than probably about 99% of films I've seen. I think it's a masterpiece. It's a really wonderful film that made my life better while I was watching it in a big way. I think it's absolutely beautiful. It's so rigorous and it's so thoughtful and there's delicacy there and joy and all of life. It's just, I think parts of Godland are completely miraculous. It takes my breath away, honestly. I I think it's that good. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film. Charles, for you, I know this is quite a bleak landscape, but I mean, would this be in the running for perhaps the sequel to Colours in Film in terms of what it shows? God, I I, I think so. You know, as as uh, you've made clear, the film is about this fellow who's using this early motion picture technology to sort of capture the breadth of the landscape. And I, my thinking, you know, I haven't really seen these original documents, but I would have to imagine that the cinematography tries to mimic the palette that they were working with when they were taking these photos. Although I guess I don't know if they were... Colors. They would have been black and white. They were, yeah, yeah, they were black and white. That's what I thought. So yeah, I mean, its its use of color isn't really what jumped out at me so much as its use of time. You know, as a durational cinema. The the joke that you know this goes by faster than Super Mario. I not even just as a Mario defender, but I I take uh, objection to specifically because I think the movie wants to be felt as long. I think as someone who is schlepping, uh, as as the Jews would say, we are supposed to feel the tribulation that he feels. Uh, And I think that that's a rewarding feeling. You know, I get the point of that. (laughs) This is, I mean, this is part of the conversation about Jean Dielman when it uh, was named the best movie of all time in the sight and sound thing recently, where there seemed to be a sort of divide between people who believe it is long willfully and people who believe it whips right by because it's such riveting cinema and while i do think it's it has this sort of hypnotic power i've, I've never felt like these things just go right by you know i i feel their length in a way that i've always assumed was intentional I mean, personally, I did kind of come into it assuming that I was going to be watching quite a kind of gentle, contemplative piece. And in some ways it is. But I mean, it's a very exciting film as well. I mean, it's kind of pleasantly surprised by just kind of how thrilling so much of it was. Yeah, it's really uh, violent as well. I mean, it's an incredibly harsh film. And there's action cinema in there. There's the scene where they're trying to ford a river together is unbelievably well-constructed and, and beautifully shot and, and performed, of course. But I mean, it, it's breathtaking stuff. You you know, you've got this action shot in the middle uh, of what is otherwise, you know, a quite metaphysical, contemplative film about, you know, about identity and nationalism, religion, faith and uh, landscape, all of these things. And in the midst of that, you've got this life and death moment where suddenly everything is torn away. And it really, I mean, it really clatters you about the face, you know, when you see that when you see that scene. And so, as you say, and there are lots and lots of other surprises as well. I mean, there's, I can think of at least, yeah, there's three really surprising deaths in the film that kind of, that, that stun you. 
Charles, for you, I mean, we've got a kind of central relationship between two brothers and Super Mario, just to make another tenuous link. And this kind of comes down a lot of it to the evolving relationship between uh, Lucas and, and Ragnar, his guide. I mean, how do you kind of view how that evolved over the course of two and a half hours? You know, the more that you talk about it, the more like Super Mario this movie becomes, because it is about someone who is traversing hostile foreign terrain from a place that is almost actively trying to reject them. Uh, someone who's trying to exert his own ideological will on an unfamiliar place that he has no understanding of whatsoever, is trying to topple existing power structures and sort of place himself in that position of influence. You see the way that the Danes treated Iceland in, starting from, I believe, the ninth century. Uh, there was diaspora and there was, you know, attempts to colonize. And I think much in the same way, Mario, no, I can uh, I can uh, put, put that away. I do think, you know, so I required a lot of additional context for this movie. I think its aesthetic appeals are immediate, but I think its political ones sort of have to be looked up. I don't know much about the history of Iceland. And so there's a really terrific piece on a wonderful publication called Animus Magazine. Uh, this piece was written by your friend and mine, Mark Ash, about the history of Iceland and, and Denmark. He is a Iceland scholar. And that, yeah, I think we see the tensions between these two countries, country and country to be at the time, sort of reiterated between Ragnar and Lucas. Uh, we, we see that there is an arrogance in the idea that you are spreading your faith and spreading enlightenment. It reminded me a lot of Silence, Martin Scorsese's Silence, which is also about missionaries who take their work so seriously that they start to develop a kind of vanity a superiority complex almost that i mean that's the whole idea of colonization is that you know better than the people you are going to help by imposing your will uh and so i think we see that playing out on a much smaller more intimate scale between the two of them uh while at the same time this is happening on like a national scale as well the film is so good on that tension as as you say of that idea of imposing one's will on a landscape and on a people and the film beautifully shows how his character and the world around him are set at odds with each other. Um, and you feel it so much and you, you sense in Elliot Crossett Hove's performance in the, in the central role as Lucas, I think he's really inhabited in this film. He, you can see him lose weight almost pretty much in front of your eyes as he travels and he becomes gaunt and haggard and, and you can see, but he's almost sort of hallowed as well towards the end of the film. You sense this energy just just coming off him because he's so inhabited by his sense of what he should be doing and he absolutely doesn't want to adapt to his environment and you see it again and again and again in scenes that are incredibly well constructed such as when he is enjoined to wrestle with local men on a on a wedding day as is their custom and to begin with he's like oh you know he won't be drawn into the fight and he's like no no please I'm you know I'm a man of God and then they get him involved in the fight and he wants to win and he's not a sturdy man as well like he's a, he, I mean he's he looks like me you know the guy's not not going to win many fights in life, put it that way. But you see, like, he really doesn't want to give up. And that scene is incredible to watch. And it really, it really figures his kind of psychological turmoil at that point of the film as it becomes increasingly negative to him. And it's going to really impact on his, on his own psyche. 
I suppose this terminology must be objectionable these days. I feel like this idiom probably doesn't have too much uh, time left, but he kind of goes native, you know, in a sense. He is sort of absorbed by the energy of this land and it terraforms him instead of doing the reverse like he hoped to. He wanted to remake this area in his own image and instead the opposite happens, that he sort of uh, is subsumed by it instead. Yeah, there's an almost kind of Lovecraftian element of that where it's um, staring into something and realizing that it is actually changing you rather than the other way around as you decided. But I suppose the monstrosity that it brings out in him is kind of much more complicated than that. Casper, you talked about being forever changed by this. What was it that really kind of stuck with you? I mean, I, I think I, I meant most that it brought me a great deal of, of joy and pleasure in that time and just has, you know, enhanced my life <laughs> for knowing it. But I think, yeah, it does absolutely join that pantheon of films, and we're going to be talking about Fitzgeraldo next, but that that pantheon of films about the folly of man. But but I think it does it in a way that, that is very appealing to me, because it does it from kind of from the other side, if you will. It looks at this person who has arrived from the point of view of, of the place he's arrived at in native people in their midst. And for instance, an example of that honesty of perspective, which I think really makes this film very, very special, is that the director casts his own daughter in a relatively big supporting role, and she plays the daughter of a family that Lucas gets close to when he arrives in in the village after his huge trek. And she plays this character really, really beautifully, and you can see that she's at home in this place. You know, you see her with her horse, and you see her in this in this landscape where she is, you know, really at one with her environment. And I think Touches like that give such honesty and such authenticity to to Palmerson's film and make this idea of the outsider feel like a kind of, like, yeah, like a political insult in many ways. And they really heighten that difference. So for me, this film is about kind of anchoring your political subject in something that is that is felt and lived and which is as critical as it should be of that imperialist tendency that, that this film describes. So do you want to get your scores on this, Charles, uh, in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? I suppose my anticipation would be a three. I was not familiar with uh, Hilner's work, but I understood that this was very well reviewed. And so that's why I was compelled to go to the screening uh, in the first place. Enjoyment. I guess I'm hesitant to describe what I felt during the film as enjoyment because, you know, it's a rich viewing experience. But again, I, I don't think it is meant to be rooted in enjoyment. So I suppose I would put that as a three as well. But then in retrospect, that's where it really opens up is the more you think about it, the more you get out of it. And so probably a four. Uh, or maybe even a five. It, it really, it opens up for you over time. Casper, what about you? In anticipation, some, something like three, I'd enjoyed, I think it's called A White White Day, Homerson's previous film, which I thought was good. But I mean, this is a, a real step up. So my anticipation was, you know, I, I was not expecting something of quite this quality. Enjoyment, five. And um, in retrospect as well, five, I think this is a film that, that just deepens the more you consider it. And yeah, Charles is right to recommend that essay by, by Mark in Animus, which really does open up a lot of the film's mysteries and, and work with it super interestingly. Yeah, I think it's a film that, that absolutely deepens with time. It's a, it's a five for me. Um, yeah, I think I'm a kind of falls across the board sort of level. It, it had come very highly recommended to me, so I did have high expectations. It wasn't precisely what I expected it to be. But yeah, it, it really kind of holds 
up upon examination. I mean, watching it, I was so there were so many surprises, there were so many thrills, and I just thought it was so strikingly gorgeous that you know it was almost overwhelming at times. But yes, the, it, it certainly is not style over substance in any way. Next up, a film club. Fitzcarraldo is an obsessed opera lover who wants to build an opera in the jungle. To accomplish this, he first has to make a fortune in the rubber business, and his cunning plan involves hauling an enormous rubber boat across the mountain with aid from the natives. I must say, I'm quite embarrassed to say that I assumed that I had seen this film before, because I'd seen Aguirre, Wrath of Gods, uh, which covers some very similar themes. But it turns out this was my first time coming to Fitzcarraldo. Charles, what about you? Uh, yeah, I uh, believe that I had gotten to this one in college during this was a very active viewing time for me when I had lots of spare time and access to a really huge university DVD library. And I watched it during that era, you know, when I was just trying to become well-rounded and even watching this off a DVD on my little laptop screen, I was uh, kind of amazed by the enormity of Herzog's vision. This guy really went out there and did it. Really endangered a whole bunch of people. Gotta respect him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the story behind it of uh, how terrible it was to make, it kind of competes with Apocalypse Now in any ways. But Casper, uh, was all that misery kind of, you know, done to serve something impressive to you? I would have to say not. And I really hope that the moment for it might not be now. We might we might have to discuss, you know, the film's actual uh, text before we get onto this. But I, I really think this film's politics are, are quite reprehensible. And the more I looked into it and, you know, and, and read up on, on Fitzcarraldo for this podcast, the more, I have to say, re- really quite sickened I became at this film's project when you understand what a, what a figure it, it's based on and what a story it's based on. I think its methods are, are borderline immoral Uh, I'd say they're just regular immoral. And this is actually, this is very much what I love about the film is that much like Apocalypse Now, I think that this is a film that if we were to put it on trial for whether or not what we get from it is worth what it took from the land and people who made it, you would have a hard time arguing that. But this is the nice thing about the past. It just exists. It's there. We can watch this incredible thing that could not have existed without human rights abuses. And we're not going to do it again, but it exists. And we get to see this thing happening that is impossible now. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has not aged well, certainly. Uh, Klaus Kinski, not a great guy. <laughs> not, a, not, a, not a great fellow. For many reasons. But I mean, I, I guess it's the dark heart of Werner Herzog in so many ways. I kind of forgive a lot of how morally dubious many elements of his work can be because it seems very sincere to a kind of personal nihilism. <laughs> He is someone who, much like Fitzcarraldo, you know, that's the whole, uh, that parallelism is the subject of, what was it, Burden of Dreams? Is that the uh, documentary about all this where it's like, Herzog is a fundamentally Fitzcarraldovian figure and he makes uh, all these people actually lug, he like, he makes this movie about all of this man's, you know, terrible human crimes and then he goes and does that all again himself, uh, sort of as as if to defy the point that he's making with his own movie, which is, you know, a hard dissonance to reconcile, but that's also part of what makes this movie fascinating to me is that it is so defiantly morally flawed uh, in pursuit of a formal perfection, which is just a crazy combination. I have to say, I did think you were about to compare him to that little star from Super Mario. <laughs> I was kind of pleased it went in another direction. I suppose, if anything, he's more like a um, 
a, a Cranky Kong character. You may remember the elderly monkey voiced by Saturday Night Live's Fred Armisen, who sort of is a... No, I'm sorry. I, this is also a bit. This is not a real opinion. Go right ahead. That impulse to kind of replicate the, you know, the, the folly and and um, and abuses that he's depicting, in a sense, and in order to kind of transfigure all of that into art, is it's sort of what makes it even more grim, isn't it? Because, you know, Fitzcarald, the person who's whose life this film is based on, had his boat, they, they packed it up to cross the hill. They, they disassembled it, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. They disassembled it and they carried it in pieces, you know. So that's not at all romantic. That's just an excursion. Whereas Herzog makes a big deal of, you know, carrying an actual boat in an act, you know, that is incredibly beautiful to watch. But, you know, the, the, the beauty of that folly, you know, was not at all a historical thing. So he's, he's making it, do you see what I mean? He's, he's trying even harder to kind of prettify that you know those horrors and i find that really like that's part of what disturbs me about this film i would be hesitant to use the word prettify though because that makes it sound like he's trying to sanitize this i feel like he's so concerned like in in a very uh he he foregrounds all the suffering that was required and all of the backbreaking labor and exertion i don't think he's trying to smooth things over but i do think that he's trying to glorify maybe glorify would be the word that i would use rather than prettify because i don't think that he shies away from how brutal this experience was but i also think that he wants us to consider it as as something that was worth doing that this was you know uh, a meaningful compact between him and some greater force and that by pursuing it you know it's it's no different than believing in god but um i do think godland has a greater sense that that impulse can get away from you and lead to just you know terrible behavior but i I think that that glorification does actually lead us to overlook the the actual horrors because what happens is that you know even though he doesn't shy away from depicting as you say the, the you know the monstrosity of this endeavor and the suffering that it entailed we're not seeing what actually happened which was a massacre of indigenous people if they refused to work with Fitzcarald. So we're not really see- we're not seeing that. What we are seeing is we're seeing an endeavor which is given some kind of validity because it's a romantic project rather than what actually was the case, which was the the pillage of a society in order to make somebody rich. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so we're, I guess we're, so... we're watching something that's a, a total distortion and that romanticizing impulse is what leads us to overlook right. certain certain horrors. I think it does. I guess this is a this is a hair worth splitting, which is that um, you know, Fitzcarraldo has his own crew, they leave him and he gets the crew of the the locals. Now do we believe that they come into his employ basically by slavery, which I believe is the historical record. Or I think the movie almost portrays it more as like a sort of cargo cult thing where they are taken with, you know, the seeming modernity of this guy and they fall in line behind him just because I guess they think he knows what he's doing. I guess I wasn't sure which which angle they're trying to have us see it from there. Yeah, I think it absolutely aligns the their reasons for, for following him and for and for working for him. Uh have you ever have you ever interviewed Herzog before? No, I wish. I I just if only for the kind of sound of his voice I wish. Yeah, I mean it, it's incredible uh to hear him say hello Charles. Uh but no, I uh, I interviewed him once over the phone and once in person and he 
is this it's almost in the same way where the way he sees the world he has like his moral valence has a neutral charge well he will say things that sound incredibly uh morally brave to me and then in the next sentence say something that i find reprehensible or just like indefensible or just an opinion that doesn't seem very well considered and i also think this is part of what people like from him that he is a very difficult to predict kind of a strange character but i think when you watch his movies and you see that someone with this worldview is given millions and gazillions of dollars to realize their vision that yeah that's part of the price of it you know he is a a a sui generis artist and that when he is able to work without guardrails that you get you know the transcendent along with the really obscene yeah, it does seem strange to me now because we've kind of revisited on this podcast a couple of uh, Herzog's earlier works of kind of how he's become quite a kind of safe cultural figure in, in, in many ways. Kind of that sort of darkness to him is laid upon for laughs, whether he's kind of doing a cameo in Parks and Recreation or now he's like on The Mandalorian and kind of to to go back <laughs> and to actually see when that was more ferocious, I suppose, was 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 very interesting to me, in uh, you know, at the very least. He's someone who I think kind of like Varda near the end of her life threatens not so much to become a parody of himself, but to be made out that way, I think, by by fans uh, that, you know, he's a very quotable person. He's got that. uh, I I always think about what he said about looking into the eyes of a chicken and seeing nothing but senselessness and death. I think about that when I see some people. And I think it's easy enough to reduce him to your favorite sound bites. But uh, he is, you know, one of those thorny artists that uh, we're going to have to sift through, you know, the grand inventory of their life and work someday. But uh, I think we prefer to do those things, not to be morbid, but after the fact, when it's uh, finite and complete, you know, that's, I don't know. Yeah, certainly. I think that's the reason that we are so able to kind of throw out Kinski with the trash. (laughs) But Casper, for you, before we wrap up, any last thoughts on Fitzcarraldo? I mean, I think it's a film of immense beauty and power. And that's the thing that kind of that makes me feel so queasy, really, is that is that I can absolutely abandon myself to this film's qualities, to everything that is kind of magnificent about it. There is a kind of heightened magnificence to it. There's a sort of outsized grandeur to its its crazy vision. Um, and in the midst of that, Kinski is giving it the full barrels and his performance is incredible. You know, he's a despicable rapist and I, I really don't want to see him or hear from him. But at the same time, you know, what we what we have before us is undeniable. And that's what leads me to feel so, uh, so really quite disgusted by this film. You know, afterwards, I was I was reading about how the, the tribes in this area where Fitzcarraldd lived, were literally separated by him into descendants of people who he forced to work with him at gunpoint, and to the descendants of people who fled his Barbary. And those two tribes, which were one until he arrived in the area, have since been separated. And they're now the Yine and the Mashko uh, tribes, you know, so from an ethnographical point of view, one guy did that by arriving. And this is a film about that guy, which doesn't really kind of get into that stuff. But, you know, I, I do think this film really brings up the question of uh, a director's responsibility to to the truth and to the, to the political dimension of, of their story. And that is unbelievably uncomfortable to me. Another beautiful note to end on, being unbelievably uncomfortable. <laughs> Thank you, Casper. Before we wrap up, we've got a non-movie based recommendation. Charles, do you want to go first? And yes, it is cheating if you say your own book. 
Uh, oh, God, I hadn't even thought about that because I, 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 would, I would never do that. Uh, no, but I am woefully out of the loop on new music, which is why I was so excited to be really taken in by a new album that I listened to for the first time over the weekend. It's uh, the new album by Fever Ray, Karen Dreyer Anderson, called Radical Romantics. Uh, she was part of a really influential Swedish electronic group called The Knife, and she has her own solo projects. And this album, I think, continues on with her sound in a way that that I find very reassuring. I don't think it's a huge, you know, divergent leap in any direction that she hasn't explored before, but it's also, she goes to this uh, very eerie sonic place that I think only she knows how to get to and that there is another, you know, 35, 40 minute period of time I can spend there. That's that's plenty for me. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I love the knife. Uh, I, yeah, now that you mention it, where where has the knife been all of these they, years? Let's say they had one in like 2013 when I was at university, I remember, because we were not allowed to play those songs on the radio because they are full of weird obscenities. <laughs> what, and that, that, that means that you can't play them on the radio? What's going on in America? <laughs> I, I know. What happened to freedom? Aren't mm-hmm. we free? <laughs> Casper, what about you? What's your recommendation? Uh, so mine is a book that I've been reading uh, called The Last Samurai by Helen wit and it has nothing to do with the film The Last Samurai that stars Tom Cruise but it does have something to do with Seven Samurai uh, because it's about a a young genius who's brought up by his mother who has no time to look after him. So she just puts lots and lots of books in in many different languages. He speaks about 37 languages, the kid's a genius, and she puts them in front of lots and lots of books and also watches Seven Samurai about five times a day. And the kid becomes really well versed in, in Japanese. And the book departs from the idea of Seven Samurai in, an, in a very moving ending where the boy is looking for a, his potential father and and tries out all of these different men uh, one at a time. And so, you know, it's kind of basing itself a little bit on on that structure. And it's such a such a funny, amazing, really, really weird and original book. I not read anything else like it. Is anybody else thinking of Mamma Mia in terms of plot? <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, when, when did you first see Seven Samurai, Casper? Oh my gosh. University, I think. So probably around the time this book was written, because it's a book from 2001. And that's when I was at university, because I'm ancient. I, I ask because I my, my story is a fun one. I, I saw Seven Samurai for the first time when I was 17. And I was very, very ill with mononucleosis, where, you know, you spend the all kissing day... disease, the kissing disease. Congrats to 17 year old you. I had been <laughs> going around licking doorknobs, and I was made to pay for that. But I was so sick and and just in in a state i was drifting in and out of sleep and watching this movie and and going from the movie into dreams and movie to dreams that i like dreamt my way into the film and i was there on the (gasps) windswept mountains with toshiro mifune and all this stuff it was really the original 40x movie experience that was i i wish that no i actually don't i don't wish i could get that sick again but i do wish i could experience that permeable consciousness again that was crazy i if i had to get very sick to be near toshiro mifune i'd I'd probably do it it's worth it yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean is there i mean not that this just needs to be a big drug advocacy podcast but is there a substance that maybe could get you there Worth, worth investigating, maybe. Surely not. I think it's it's really just being sleepy. Um, Apisha Pong talks about this a lot, which is that, you know, he has no issue with people drifting off during his films because he feels that that allows you to move in and out of the film in a different way, which is an idea that I love well, because I think that that's fascinating experientially and because it gives me uh, an out from feeling bad for falling asleep during movies. 
Well, that is certainly not something that we can fully recommend, but I challenge anyone to fall asleep during Super Mario Brothers and that kind of aggressive attack of image and sound and Kongs. I suppose. But if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, Nicolas Cage is Dracula in Renfield. Mia Hansen-Love returns with One Fine Morning, and we also got to talk to the director. And finally, for Film Club, it's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guest this week, Charles Romesco and Casper Salmon. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.